Welcome again. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills, and it's such an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning and to um, especially to open up God's Word for us this morning. And so I want to do that and and jump right in. Um, We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning. We've been in um, Nehemiah. If you are visiting, you're catching us in the middle of a series on Nehemiah called Building Blocks. Um, We primarily um, do expository preaching here at West Hills. We take books of the Bible and let preach through them and let them uh, uh, weigh in on our lives rather than uh, doing it in reverse order. And so if you're not familiar with the, the book of Nehemiah, let me give you a quick summary to catch us up. Uh, Jerusalem, God's holy city, um, has been in disrepair for some 150 years since falling to the Babylonian Empire. Uh, but now the exiled Jews have begun returning home. And so Nehemiah has received a special calling from God to go and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And so last week in chapter 4, Pastor Gary, our head pastor here, addressed how we are to deal with external threats uh, that will come up whenever we are doing the Lord's work and, and pursuing the kingdom of, of God here on earth, whether that's rebuilding a wall 2,500 years ago or whether that's trying to spread the gospel today. How do we deal with those enemies from the outside? But this week, we're going to be in chapter 5. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have them. If not, we'll have the words on the screen in a minute. Um, but this week in chapter 5, the threat is not from the outside. It's an internal threat. The enemy this week lies within. Nehemiah realizes that it's not actually going to be enough to just simply build a wall to keep Judah's foreign enemies out because the people have in many ways become their own worst enemies. They are guilty of committing all kinds of injustices against one another, and that is going to be a key word for us this morning, injustice. So the injustice is defined as an unfair or wrong act, Okay. Uh, for those of you who weren't here at VBS, on night two of VBS, I was teaching the Bible discovery downstairs. We did the lesson of Martha and Mary. And so I broke the, the cruise into t- two groups. There were the Marys and the Marthas. And the Marys got to watch a movie while uh, Martha cleaned and swept up the house. That story from Luke, if you're familiar. And so I asked them afterwards, you know, Martha, Martha's, how did y'all feel um, knowing that, that they weren't helping prepare for, for Jesus? And uh, like, it's unfair. And I, I asked them, um, can any of y'all think of any uh, personal examples of that from your real lives? Maybe, you know, a, a time when you and your siblings were fighting and your parents punished you, but it wasn't. And, and I'm telling you, the hand shot up so quick. They just had so many examples. So I'm glad that you guys are here uh, because many of you apparently need to hear uh, this message this morning about uh, injustice um, in your parenting. So um, let's, with that being said, would you stand with me uh, out of respect for God's word? And I will read uh, Nehemiah 5. Uh, we're going to skip a, just a few of the verses there at the end, but you can read them on your own later. Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of the wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now 
Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, and yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we are as far as we are able... Uh, we, as far as we are able, have brought, bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So I called the priest and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment And said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Remember for my good. Oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Uh, We thank you that we are not left lost and uh, unguided, undirected when it comes to how we ought to live and how we ought to go about um, countering, uh, combating, uh, tackling issues of injustice. Father, as we bring up, stir up some of those issues and think about where that plays out in our own modern-day context, um, I pray that you would soften hearts. I pray that you would give us eyes and ears and, and minds and hearts to see and to feel um, injustice in our own day, that you would give us hands and feet that are uh, bold and empowered and strengthened to... Uh, be a part of the solution and not the problem. Father, uh, help your church this morning become uh, more of who you would have us to be, and we will give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in chapter 5 here, Nehemiah is going to give us an eight-step paradigm for tackling injustice that you'll find on the back of your bulletins there. And so for each of those steps... I want to give you three things. First, I want to give you the principle from 
Nehemiah that we find here. Secondly, I want to give you just some supporting scripture from elsewhere in the Bible where we see this principle showing up. And then thirdly, uh, I want to give you, as I prayed, a modern-day application of that principle, real-life examples of injustice in our day and age. Now, I will warn you, this, this message at times might sound a little political. My goal is not at all to be political this morning, um, but to be practical. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. It's useless. And so if we are not taking the biblical principles that we're learning from Nehemiah and others in Scripture, and then actually applying them from Sundays on Monday through Saturday in our real lives, in our real politics, in our real thinking, in our real actions, in our, in our everyday conversations. If we're not applying them, then biblically speaking, our faith is useless. And so at the risk of, of, of possibly offending this morning, I don't want to risk emptying God's word of its power and its edge uh, and what it, I believe would have to speak into some of these issues. There are real issues of injustice in Nehemiah's day that needed to be addressed, and he did not shy away from doing it. And so too, there are real issues of injustice in our day and age today, and we shouldn't either. God is not a Republican or a Democrat. Amen? And these issues are not primarily political issues. They are human issues because there are humans behind every single one of these things that we're going to talk about this morning. And so because of that, we are compelled to care. We are compelled to care because God cares. He tells us that over and over and over again in his word. Deuteronomy 16, he says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, justice, and only justice you shall follow. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice and to love kindness? Jeremiah 22, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. And according to the Old Testament prophets, the very reason that these 5th century BC Jews find themselves in this whole rebuilding predicament in the first place is because they have not listened to those commands of God. They have not done that. They have not pursued justice and followed righteousness. And so, we don't want to fall into the same trap this morning. And that makes their continued moral failures during this whole rebuilding phase all the more upsetting to Nehemiah. I want to share with you how one commentary summarizes the context of the situation in verses 2 through 8 in Nehemiah uh, chapter 5. Here's what he says. The already marginal financial status of many people in the community has deteriorated even further because of their work on the wall, which was apparently done without remuneration. Nehemiah is not paying them to, to take off work to come help build this wall in Jerusalem. Because of drought and crop failures, we hear about that in verse 3, because of the need to pay Persian taxes out of the surplus that should have been produced from any given field. In verse 4, the Persians didn't start, stop charging them their taxes just because they took a, a two-month staycation to go help build the wall. Nehemiah had required the builders to stay in Jerusalem during the 52 days of wall building, and this meant that there was a shortage of labor at harvest time when grain farmers would acquire almost all of their income for the year and when capital and interest payments would fall due. So basically, this is a worst-case scenario, worst time that Nehemiah could have picked to have built this wall, and yet when God calls, you go, right? And so basically, this is a perfect storm, financially speaking, for many of these Jews who are volunteering to help rebuild the wall pro bono. But the real injustice in this context arises when certain opportunists and loan sharks 
from within their very own community jump at the chance to turn a quick profit, make a quick buck at the expense of these poor, vulnerable fellow Judeans. They are doing four things that we hear of specifically. They're monopolizing grain distribution, verses two and three. They're charging exorbitant interest of their fellow Jewish kinsmen. They are forcing them to sell their own children into slavery, verse five. And then not only that, they're engaging in the slave trade themselves in order to turn a profit. Basically, they're gaming the system. Nehemiah has started buying his fellow countrymen back from the foreign lands, and these guys pick up on it, and so they start selling the the kids of the slaves, their neighbors, into foreign lands for a profit, knowing that Nehemiah is just going to buy them back anyways. They're gaming the system. And all of these things were explicitly against the law as laid out by God himself from all the way back in Deuteronomy 23 through 25, Exodus 21 through 23, and Leviticus 25. And so with that as the context for this this message and for, for how Nehemiah is going to go about taking on this injustice in his day and age, how does he suggest that we go about doing it? Eight steps. Step number one, we must hear. Verses one through five, we must first hear the cries of the oppressed. Nehemiah says there arose a great outcry of the people. But if that cry falls on deaf ears, then steps two through eight don't matter. The first step is always to admit and to identify that there's a problem and what it is. And so in the Bible, we we see God himself doing this constantly. God hears the cries of his people all through scripture, perhaps most notably in Exodus 2 during their enslavement in Egypt. We hear during those days, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That is a powerful passage. Our God hears when we suffer. He sees, he remembers, he knows. And then because of that, because of God's liberating action in freeing his people from slavery, that becomes the example that he then commands his followers to to follow as well in the law. Exodus 22, he says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will what? I will surely hear their cry. Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the cries of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and incline your ear. And so today, How might we better attune our own ears to hear the cries of the afflicted? I especially asked myself that question this week uh, in the wake of the news coming out of Ohio State. If If you heard this news this week, head football coach Urban Meyer was suspended while the school looks into allegations that he turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the cries of his assistant coach's wife, who was the victim of domestic abuse for years while Meyer and others failed to intervene despite her repeated pleas for help. After Jerry Sandusky at Penn State, Larry Nassar at Michigan State, Harvey Weinstein, and the the list goes on and on and on, we've seen this this movement lately in in our society of people rising up trying to give voices back to the voiceless and power back to the powerless. But we have to ask ourselves this morning, church, have we done everything in our power to stand with and to speak up 
and to help shine a light on the darkness that is this issue of abuse. Proverbs 31.8 says, uh, God tells us, open your mouth for the mute. It's a commandment from God. Open your mouth for the mute. So we have to ask, have we been a voice for the voiceless? There, there are so many who still, despite the, the, the rising tide, they will still feel too afraid, too ashamed, too hurt to speak up for themselves. And so as a church, we are called to stand with them, to speak out for them when they don't have a voice of their own against injustice and abuse wherever we find it. Do we hear their cries? Uh, point number two, principle two, we must feel in verse 6, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. It's not just enough to hear the cries of the oppressed. We, they, they ought to move us. Listen to how the oppressed Judeans make their appeal in verse 5. They say, our flesh is as, our, the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. They're like, we're your next door neighbors. We're, we're your, your family. Can't you feel our hurt, our heartache for our own children? God promises that he does. God does all through scripture. Exodus 22, that same passage we just read, the very next verse, verse 24 says, you shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him. If you do, uh, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn. God feels for the oppressed and against the, the oppressor. He, he not only hears, he feels. Think of Paul confronting Peter uh, when he is discriminating and, and, and being uh, basically a, a racist in, in Galatians 2 against the Gentiles. Think of Jesus flipping over the money changers' tables outside the temple. Paul exhorting us to be angry without sinning. There is a place for righteous anger amongst believers. And so, again, how might we implement this principle today? I'll just suggest one. I'm throwing out issues. All of these issues apply to all of these principles, but, but I'll leave it for you as to how prayerfully we parse this out. Immigration is a complex and controversial issue today. But regardless of your politics and regardless of what you think the solution is, from sanctuary cities all the way down to mass deportation, the one thing that we as Christians should all be able to agree on is that when folks who are literally and legitimately running for their lives, when they show up on our doorstep, the answer is not to separate terrified babies and toddlers from their parents. That is wrong. And if, if you watched any of those videos and heard the screams of those babies and you weren't viscerally moved, if that doesn't make us feel righteous anger, then there's something wrong. There, there, I, I'm not arguing that there aren't abuses and there aren't people who are gaming the system, taking advantage of our broken broken system. Yes, we need comprehensive reform, but in the meantime, we must feel for the sojourner in our own midst, the most needy and the most vulnerable. Principle number three, Nehemiah says, we must think. Verse seven, I was angry, and so I took counsel with myself. Nehemiah carefully thought out his response to this oppression. Elsewhere in the Bible, we hear in Proverbs 16, how much better it is to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding than is to be chosen rather than silver. In Isaiah uh, 1, if you've got that on the next slide, Eli, uh, come now, uh, God says to Isaiah, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God appeals to Isaiah's sense of reason in giving him an early prefiguring of the gospel message. God created us with brains for a reason. 
right? And so I, I'll give you an example here. This is a personal example, actually, for me, um, of how it can be actually dangerous to simply feel without also thinking. At my opening uh, convocation at Vanderbilt Divinity School, where I got my master's, uh, the dean of the school shared a story about his first day of attending Vanderbilt uh, 30 years prior, walking down uh, 21st Street and passing a homeless gentleman who uh, asked for money and realizing, fumbling through his pockets, realizing he didn't have any change. And so he, he, he said, I made a vow that day never to be caught without spare change again. And so he joked about being nicknamed Jingles because of the sound he'd make when he was walking through campus in his pockets jingling with change. Now, as someone who interned uh, at a homeless shelter through college, uh, I can tell you that, that the first thing that I learned on day one of working with the homeless is that you never give, give cash, you never give change to, to someone who's homeless because the, the vast majority of people who are homeless, uh, there is a direct correlation, direct tie with both substance abuse and mental illness, one or the other, or both. And so most of the time by doing that, you're actually exacerbating the problem and perpetuating the cycle of poverty. Right? There are other ways to get involved, but that requires thinking, not just feeling, but thinking. Right? And it actually, in a lot of cases, requires more effort right, than just throwing some change at the problem. Principle number four is to repent. Verse 10, Nehemiah says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Before Nehemiah can confront the loan sharks, he's got to confess that he's actually part of the problem. He is personally implicated in this issue. And so Nehemiah is careful to take the log out of his own eye before, or, uh, before pointing out the speck in, in others and challenging them. It's hard to overstate the importance of repentance all through Scripture, of course. Uh, going back all the way to the Old Testament, God has tied the necessity of repentance to salvation. Isaiah 30 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Not in your works, if you, you must repent of your works and rest in my covenant faithfulness. That's in the Old Testament. And then, of course, in the New, Jesus says in Mark 1, he came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What must we do? Repent and believe. That's all we can do, it's all we have to do. The essence of salvation in the Christian faith, repentance and belief. Acts 3, repent that your sins may be blotted out. And so today, for many of us, when it comes to issues of injustice, I think it may be easy if you're like me uh, sometimes to, to think about and to confess our sin uh, in the private personal matters, our impure thoughts, our unloving emotions. But we often sometimes, I think, struggle to recognize the role that we play in some of these bigger systems of injustice today. So let me give you one Example, we're on the verge of an all-out trade, trade war with China, right? And, and there's plenty of room for finger-pointing. Our own failed policies, certainly uh, we're all in agreement about China's shady business practices for years now. Uh, but I think we also have to look, take a look in the mirror this morning and ask ourselves, what have we done to deter them? If we're honest, don't we kind of like being able to buy our toys and our clothes and our iPhones at half the price, even if it means if a kid in a sweatshop in Changshu will lose a finger occasionally here or there? I mean, Nehemiah calls us this morning to repent, to acknowledge that in a lot of ways we are complicit in some of these systems of injustice that we see all around us.
So we repent and we begin to vote differently with our wallets. That's what he calls us to confront. Principle five is to confront. We, we confront injustice wherever we find it. Nehemiah says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. He calls them out. And the Bible is full of people that God sends to call people out. They're called prophets. Isaiah 10, Jeremiah 22, Micah 2, Amos 8. I've got slides there, but you can go back and, and read them uh, for yourself later. They're all sent by God because he loves his people too much to let them go on being either on the giving or the receiving end of sin and injustice. God wants to rid our relationships of sin and injustice. And so he expects us to, to confront. Kevin mentioned that even in his explanation of membership. It's part of what we're called to do is for one another as the body of Christ. Confront. Matthew 18 Jesus tells us, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. And so this could apply to, again, all of these issues that we're discussing today, but just take one, abortion. So sensitive, so controversial, but at the risk of oversimplifying, as Christians, if we believe that human life begins at conception, Psalm 139, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, my frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, your eyes saw my unformed substance. If we believe that, then that, that kind of makes the question of whether or not abortion is a grave injustice, it's a pretty easy question to answer. Whether or not it needs to be confronted by us today, the church. The, the more difficult question, I think, for the church is in the face of this grave injustice where 130,000 babies are killed worldwide every single day, how are we going to confront it? How do we confront it? Not if, not should, but how do we confront it? Do we just scream angrily from picket lines and Facebook posts? Or do we foster? Do we adopt? Do we fund sex education programs that cut down on unwanted pregnancies in the first place? Do we financially support poor mothers who choose to keep their babies? Are we pro-life beyond just the womb? These are real questions for us. Do we put our money where our mouths are? And at the same time, do we model radical love and forgiveness and compassion for those who have made the unfortunate choice of having an abortion? That is hard. If, if we as believers think that this is murder, that is hard to love and forgive and show compassion. And yet we take our example from our Lord who looked his own murderers in the face and said, Father, forgive them. That was his prayer. Principle number six is we act. We must act Nehemiah says, let us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them this very day their fields. He puts his money where his mouth is. Nehemiah steps in and acts. And we can do everything else, all five steps leading up to step number six, but if we don't have the courage and the boldness to act, then it's, frankly, it's all for naught. God commands us in his word, James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled is not mere beliefs, but it's to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction, not just to hear their cries, not just to feel bad for them, to visit them, to care for them, to act. Matthew 25, Jesus says, 
is going to say one day, come, you who are blessed by my Father. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say, as you did it unto one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. You did it. You did something. You acted. And so again, consider just one such opportunity for us to act together in the coming weeks. I want to put this before you, church. I received an email last week from our denomination headquarters calling for urgent prayer and fasting for our missionaries in Nepal. This was the email. The church in Nepal has been growing at a faster rate than nearly anywhere else in the world, but last year, the Hindu government of Nepal formally criminalized conversion to Christianity. On August 15th, this new law will be enforced. Our Christian leaders will be immediately, uh, sorry, Our people have told us that the government has already drafted a list of Christian leaders in the country to be immediately jailed, and many of Converge's missionaries are on the list. In the last decade, these these men and women have overseen the planting of thousands of churches. We are calling on believers to join us in a day of prayer and fasting for the people of Nepal on August 14th. Remember back to chapter 1 of Nehemiah. It was the first thing he did when he heard the news from Jerusalem, before he ever built a wall, before he ever even approached the king. The first thing he did was prayer. Prayer is action. And scripture tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so I I implore you to join me and join our denomination in praying for these missionaries in Nepal on August 14th. That is action. Principle number seven is commit. Verses 12 and 13, Nehemiah understands that it's one thing to get someone to repent and agree to change, but it's another thing sometimes to get them to follow through. And so he pushes them to commit. Put it in writing. Verse 12, he says, I called the priest and made them swear to do as they promised. And then just to really hammer the point home in verse 13, he gives him a word picture and he shakes out the fold of his garment, his pockets, and he said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. In the New Testament, Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 5. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just say what you mean, mean what you say. Commit, follow through. In Matthew 21, he tells the parable of the two sons. If one son says, sure, dad, I'll go out in the field and work for you, never gets off the couch, and the other never says a word and puts in a hard day's worth of work, who has been more faithful? Jesus is not interested in our lip service. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. There are lots of people out there that mean well and like to fancy themselves as kind, compassionate, loving people. There are few people who actually are and who follow through. Jesus says, choose the narrow way, the committed way, consistency. So I'll give you another somewhat personal example of uh, how this might play out today. Megan Clayton sent me a, uh, sent our life group a text this past week uh, to let us know that one of her students had been shot and killed and to ask for our support. And she went on to explain the circumstances, and it just reminded me of how, uh, of this utterly alternative reality that is being lived out by thousands of children and men and women, the most vulnerable citizens of our city, our Jerusalem here in St. Louis, just down the road from us right now. As, as her husband Scott put it, 
it's too easy to forget that we live 30 minutes from a war zone. And St. Louis City is number two on Forbes' list of most dangerous cities in the country. And yet, every day, some of you, like Megan, get up, get in your cars, and drive into some of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country to teach, to drop off meals, Sally Harvison, to, to, to do free chiropractic adjustments, Abby, to, to give free nursing health care, Lisa Johnson, and, and, and on and on I could go through. There's so many of you I can't even list. That, kind of, that, that, that goes beyond just feeling, hearing, thinking, acting. That is commitment. That is committed action. That is inspiring to me, and it should be to us as a church to see so many of you who give your lives away to serving others and oftentimes to, to, to serving those who need it the most and can't afford it. And when it's at such risk of such great potential personal cost to you, that is really humbling. That is putting this stuff that we're talking about this morning into practice and it leads us to our final principle for taking on injustice and that's lead. We are called to lead like Nehemiah. He remembers in verses 14 through 19 how he strived to lead by example by modeling selfless service in his promotion of equity and justice. He says, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah for 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, Nehemiah would have been entitled, uh, legally entitled as governor of J Jerusalem to tax the people in order to raise his own financial support. And yet, not only does he not do that, because he says, I don't want to put that extra added burden on the people who were so impoverished, but he goes beyond that in verses 17 and 18 and tells us that he actually fed his other government employees who reported to him, 150 of them that sat at his table, he fed them out of his own pocket to save on having to levy taxes to support them as well. He is a true servant leader like so many of you. And especially in, like Jesus. He prefigured the greatest servant and leader of all time, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, in humility, this is how we respond, knowing that that's what's been done for us. In humility, we count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to, to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so for our modern day application of point number eight, I will simply ask you, I'll leave this open-ended and toss it out for you. What is it going to mean for you today, this week, to lead by serving selflessly? What injustice has God placed particularly on your heart 
this morning that you can follow in the example, the footsteps of your Savior who laid down his life for you, that you could lay down your life for someone else and stand for the cause of justice to see God's kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven a little bit more. I'll close with two last thoughts. First, um, I hope that some of you will leave here this morning feeling empowered, impassioned and empowered to go out and, and take the world by storm. At the very least, uh, I didn't notice anyone who stormed out on me, and so I'll count that as a win. But uh, some of us may leave here feeling a little bit overwhelmed. You might feel overwhelmed because you might feel really small in the face of such big injustices and such big issues. And so while I, I, while I think that a healthy dose of humility is called for, I also want to encourage you this morning not to underestimate the power you do have to make an impact. I mean, I'll just give one example. Maybe no one in this room is the next MLK Jr., but what about the next Rosa Parks? I mean, just think about her example for a second. What did she really do? She sat in a seat. She sat down, and everyone today knows her name because she changed the world by one simple, small action and stand, not literally, sit for justice. And so I ask you, what small step can you make today, this week, to hear, to feel, to think, to act for good and for justice in our world? And secondly, you may be feeling overwhelmed leaving here because you know that, frankly, all of this is just too much for you. Like me, maybe you know your own heart, and you know that no matter how hard you try this week to muster up the goodness and the courage and the love and the selflessness, the strength to go out and fight the good fight, inevitably, your selfishness is going to creep in, your timidity is going to creep in, fatigue maybe just plain laziness, it sets in. And so trying to, to combat injustice in your own strength, you will fail. And that's absolutely true. But that's why we need the Holy Spirit to empower us, to guide and convict us and to lead us. We need to be rem reminded, like we sang this morning, that the Lord is our shepherd and that his spirit has anointed and, uh, and, and goes with us, goes before us. But we also need to remind ourselves this morning that even when we do fail, because we will, that for those of us who belong to Christ, your salvation is not contingent on the degree to which you effectively combat injustice in this world. If, if my standing, I'll just speak personally for myself this morning, if my standing with, with the Father was dependent on my faithfulness to take on injustice at every turn, wherever I see it, I would be in serious trouble. It's not. Praise God. And the irony, the great, beautiful irony of our faith is that at the very center of Christianity lies the greatest injustice in the history of humankind. that was not only allowed by God, but was actually ordained and orchestrated from, by God from the beginning of time. And some of y'all would say, whoa, you're saying God perpetrated injustice? Well, 
we have to understand the nuance of the, the difference. There's two definitions for just, what something has to do, be to be just. One is good and right. God is always good and right. I'm not saying that God is not just in that sense. But the second definition is that just can also just mean fair. And God is not always fair. And praise God that he's not. The, the greatest injustice and most unfair event in all of human history was the cross, the centerpiece of our faith, God trading his righteousness for my unrighteousness. That is a huge injustice, stepping into the courtroom and saying, I'll take the penalty. Praise God that he's not fair. And praise God that no amount of failure on my part to be fair and to be just today can ever come between me and him now. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you're not fair when it comes to our salvation. When it comes to our eternity, that you did the most good, right, but unfair thing imaginable in sending your son to take our place on the cross. Father, thank you that because of that gospel good news and the hope and the peace and the security that we have in you this morning, we don't have to leave here anxious. We don't have to leave here worried, unsettled, by the thought that maybe we will be uh, found unworthy, we will be found unfaithful, we will be found uh, not good and loving and kind and just and, and fair and enough. Because you're sovereign and you're good and you're forgiving and merciful to us. And so, Father, would you let that mercy, compassion, would you let your justice and your love for us overflow in our hearts and give us a peace and a security that allows us to go out feeling not timid, not scared, not fearful, not angry, but, but empowered, impassioned to hear to feel, to think, to repent when necessary, but to confront and act and commit and lead by our example, by following in your example and laying down our lives for others. Father, there's so much injustice in our world. It can feel overwhelming. Help us to take one small step today. Give us eyes to, ear, eyes to see, ears to hear hearts to feel and hands and feet to act would you move us move in us this morning for your good for your kingdom here on this earth and then we pray